will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Um, hello. Uh, so, um, this past Saturday, uh, Saturday just gone as I record this, I had a, uh, a TV show on BBC Two. It was 30 minutes long, it was called Missing Episode. Uh, it was written and presented by me with music by Johnny Common uh, and it was directed by Charlie Lyne. Um, now, because it's my birthday and also uh, the third birthday of this podcast, happy birthday, imaginary advice, I thought it would be nice uh, to release this month's podcast as a commentary track for the TV show and uh, yeah, to kind of use this space here to talk about how the show was constructed and get a little bit deeper into some of the themes. So if you haven't seen the show, uh, you can find it on BBC iPlayer. It's called Performance Live, colon, missing episode. Um, after uh, a month, it's going to be gone from the iPlayer. But uh, from then on, after that, uh, I'll make sure there's a link to it somewhere on the Imaginary Advice website. That's www.imaginaryadvice.com. So if you can't find it on the iPlayer, have a look at my website. That should tell you where it is. Um, so yeah, if you want to play along at home, uh, you just have to load up the episode. There's an introduction at the start by Evan Davis. So you can skip that uh, and then pause the video just as the TV set appears with the EastEnders opening on it. Uh, uh, once you've paused it, mute the video uh, and then just get ready to press play on that video um, when I give you the signal. And look, I, I, I wish that I could say that, um, that this episode still works as a standalone audio piece, you know, that you could just use it in whatever way you normally use the podcast. But listen, I've listened back to it now and no, it's it's not going to make a lot of sense. So, um, so I'm sorry to those who don't have access to the film. But it's my birthday, yeah? This is what I want for my birthday. When I was 10, I'd be satisfied with a McDonald's and a ticket to see Basil the Great Mouse Detective. But the tastes of a 37-year-old man are a little more refined. I like to celebrate with some brand synergy, okay? That's, that's, how, that's how I roll now. That's what I like. Right, so, so presuming you're now ready and you've got the video all queued up, let's start the countdown. Unpause the video in three. No, wait, wait, wait. We're going to do it. You're going to unpause it. You're not going to go on one. You're going to go after one. All right. I'll go three, two, one now. Okay. And then you do it. All right. Unpause the video in three, two, one. Now, here we go. Um, you're currently looking at my parents' old TV set. Uh, it was so full of dust that the TV actually started smoking when we first turned it back on, uh, which was a, a nice effect, actually. It felt like we'd um, accidentally caused some kind of diabolic summoning, as if Grant Mitchell might be about to just uh, sadako himself into my parents' living room podcast listeners, this is what I look like. Uh, I look almost human, don't I? Imagine 
if Andy Serkis ever played a CGI tramp, it would look a bit like me, I think. Because this whole program is a single 30-minute take, um, we could only record about four takes a day um, from 8 p.m. to about 1 a.m. And that was a process that we did for the entire week. The idea being that it would feel like a little mini theatre run. I'd have time to have like good shows and bad shows and work through the material. And I really needed every single one of those takes. There's about 50 or so moments in the show where I have to be split second in sync with a TV set. So yeah, I needed a lot of practice jumping through all the hoops. And uh, the take that we used uh, was in fact the, the final take that we recorded. So this is filmed uh, around midnight on, uh, on the final night. My God, this already feels like so much like a professional DVD commentary, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking takes and schedules. I mean, all I'm saying, I mean, just strap the fuck in, guys. Let's take down some curtains. Here I'm explaining my weird Pavlovian reaction to the EastEnders theme tune. Um, every time I hear that theme tune, I feel, I feel sick. And, uh, and it all stems back to a car crash I had when I was 17. Um, I'd watched EastEnders before leaving the house that night, and though I'd buried the memory of the crash and forgotten most of the details, I still thought that, you know, potentially I could, I could, I could bring that story back into the front of my mind if I just watched enough episodes of the soap. Now, the story that I tell here is, is, is completely true. It's a kind of simplified version of the actual development process. It started with me buying a, a, a bootleg of all of EastEnders 1997 off a guy on eBay. Uh, it was only 50 quid, came on like 15 DVDs. And um, I just immersed myself in it. And uh, here's the thing, like I was not expecting EastEnders to be such a powerful gateway into the past. But yeah, it, it really was. And, and I'm convinced it's precisely because soap operas are disposable. If you think that um, most areas of culture are so heavily reproduced that they can often end up feeling uh, like they've been taken out of time altogether. Okay, take the film uh, Vertigo. Okay, it was one of my favourite films. Um, but um, whenever I watch it now, like I can't really remember the first time I saw it because it's been clouded by so many other watches over the years. So when I watch it now, I'm 9, I'm 14, I'm 18, I'm 22. Like The timeline is all messed up so no despite the fact that it means so much to me uh, I still I can't use vertigo as a window into my past soaps on the other hand um, soaps almost immediately disappear off the internet after use um, and so that way they're protected so then if you do find a way back to an old episode you can reconnect with a moment that you've had absolutely no access to in the intervening years. This is like um, state-dependent memory. The idea is that like, when you get drunk, you remember other things you did when you were drunk. Uh, and then when you sober up, you kind of forget them again. I think this is the same thing here. It's only by returning to 1997's Albert Square that I can remember the things that were in my head in 1997. Johnny Common sitting in the airing cupboard. This is where the magic happens. Uh, I love the fact that we got to do the classic uh, soundtrack is actually playing in the room joke. It's such a Mel Brooks gag. Um, Johnny's music is 
such an integral part of the story, despite the fact that the camera is trapped in this house and the entire story of the crash has to exist solely in the imagination of the audience. Johnny's music really helps take us there. I, I, I think it, it does so much of the emotional heavy lifting too. Um, so much work went into the back end of the music. Um, Johnny and I both started on the project about the same time. So just as I was scouring... Uh, the EastEnders episode looking for moments that could be transformed into poetry Johnny was working through the same footage looking for any kind of musical motif uh, the way Barry wipes his feet on a doormat the way Bianca says alright um, pretty much all the music that you hear from Johnny is it, stuff that has evolved out of samples of the episode um, the next bit of music coming up uh, when I go into the kitchen that piece evolved out of the patter of Billy's footsteps as he leaves the room later on there's a song that comes out of the creak of Alan's chair and uh, the, the bass line of the finale is basically Carol's voice which has been twisted and manipulated in this cool way so, like, okay, so everything is set up now. Uh, I've described leaving the house with my mate Jay. We're scheduled to crash in about 16 minutes' time. It's time to move into my old kitchen and do a little film crit module where I break down the story and themes of uh, this episode of EastEnders. So if you look into the background of that shot, you'll see, uh, you'll see there's a postcard on Carol's fridge. Um... It looks like a, like, a, like a painting of a dog. I think it's like an English pointer, yeah? An English pointer? Um, I spent a long, long time trying to research that painting. I thought it might be a lead, you know? Like it might reveal some kind of subliminal message within the program. I mean, this was basically my process throughout, which was just overthink everything. Uh, just go down every single rabbit hole I can find. A bit like an English pointer, actually. I always thought of this part of the script as, as a kind of commentary track. So that does put me in a weird situation now of trying to do a commentary track about a commentary track, which doesn't work. Like, if, if you're playing charades, you can't mime charades. And that <laughs> will, will still not be the most pretentious thing I say to you today. So let's talk EastEnders. Lindsay Coulson, who plays Carol, she's really, really great in this episode. I love the way that she rides the police uh, whenever they pop up in the story. You can really feel uh, the walls closing in around her as she realises that uh, she can't protect her family from this invisible threat. And like, here's the thing, I don't really watch EastEnders, and uh, I haven't since I was a teen. Um, so like I don't have like a great grasp on like the show as a whole, but I, I mean I, I'm aware that they do occasionally do some high concept stuff. You know, like there's that famous episode where it's just Doc Cotton's face for 30 minutes, and uh, she doesn't say anything. She just blows smoke at the camera, and that's it. And maybe she does say stuff. No, I think I think she just smokes, and that's it. So I mean I do know that occasionally they do like cool weird stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, but the chance that we would just accidentally stumble onto a high-concept episode, like, what are the odds of that? Um, nevertheless, like, uh, like we're, we're so lucky. I mean, this is such an interesting uh, little kind of quirky bit of storycraft. Full credit to 
screenwriter Rob Gittins and uh, director Nick Reed for doing this this wonderful little sleight hand with the extras. Um, it's funny though because we're so familiar with screen drama conventions, right? You know, like the the whole inherent weirdness of extras that that is just completely normalised, right? You know, people dancing in nightclubs to really quiet music, or uh, sitting in the backgrounds of restaurants not eating anything. But um, as this episode illustrates, all it takes is a couple of tiny moments, and all that hidden architecture gets exposed. And of course, you know, also this isn't the only time. The EastEnders writers have drawn attention to the soapstone construction. Uh, I love the uh, the running gag uh, around uh, Tracy, the silent barmaid who's been in the show since 1985. I think the show treats uh, Tracy a little bit like the uh, the Ravens in the Tower of London. But um, yeah, by the end of this section, the idea was that we would have helped the audience recalibrate their brains a bit, right? Uh, so now they would be thinking about EastEnders differently, they'd look into backgrounds, they'd look around the frame. It's a kind of paranoiac mindset. That was what we sort of needed to activate in people, get their brains into the uh, alpha-theta crossover state so you can uh, you can start to identify patterns hidden in the backgrounds of the footage. Um, here I'm talking about parting ways with my mate Jay and uh, how the car crash ended our friendship. This is all stuff that I had genuinely forgotten until the making of this program. Um, I do so much excellent pointing. Uh, several people pointed out to me how good I am at pointing, but obviously someone like me, a master pointer, doesn't need anything to be pointed out to them. In my head, I've already pointed out to myself anything that would ever need pointing out. I'm like 12 points ahead, mate, and yet I don't even think about pointing at me. If you come at the king, you best not miss. This is my favourite little bit of synchronicity here as I as I rub my head at the, uh, the same time as the dude in the background. There you go. Uh, so um, there's a missing scene, uh, a whole other set piece that we were forced to take out for time and it usually slotted in just here at this moment, right? Um, it was... A, uh, a looped scene of uh, Nigel working in his video shop. I tried to take the whole video shop and, and, and sort of use it as a metaphor for my mate Jay. Johnny wrote this great trap beat to go with it. I mean, come on, trap Nigel. W what's not to like? So now we're heading back into the kitchen. This is the central set piece of the programme, taking about a minute of EastEnders and turning it into the story of my car crash. This is not the first time I've used this technique. Um, this is the same process I used in uh, my 2014 theatre show, Standby for Tape Backup. I was using an old VHS tape that I found in my attic. I, I tried to write poetry that would synchronise with uh, the footage shot for shot so it became its own um, poetic form I, I watched it back over and over and over until the whole thing became a kind of shifting ink block um, doing this obviously it made the writing very very slow very very intuitive you know you just like watch a second of video write another line watch another second write another line I just had to go wherever the tape led me um, and slowly, like over time, uh, it helped me map the inside of my brain. 
it kind of revealed my uh, my thought processes and um, and dislodged buried memories. Uh, I, I wrote about grief and my granddad and my my struggles with work and um, even uh, admitted to suffering from depression, which is something I haven't really talked about with anyone before, but uh, somehow, just by making it so difficult to write, um, I accidentally released this kind of series of kind of buried confessions. Um, so I was confident that I could take the EastEnders footage and, and use it to map my mind like I'd done before. And, you know, like before, like I found stuff in there that was, uh, that was a surprise to me, stuff that I probably wouldn't have said had uh, the process not backed me into a corner. But this is, this is sort of the whole deal with using constraints in art. You know, it's about forcing truths out of your subconscious. At least uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's what it is for me. So um, here's the part where I start to talk a little bit more candidly about being a coward. I mean, I don't put it exactly like that in the show. I'm easily overwhelmed and my flight response is a bit of a hair trigger. I'd say this, this, um, this flaw of mine it's, it's, I think it's, it's essentially the emotional motif of the show. Um, the whole thing is about learning like how to be overwhelmed and yet not run away. Uh, I mean, I decided upon this, this image of a mountain as a kind of shorthand symbol for that feeling. You know, something unchangeable, vast. Our brains just start to glitch out if we think about that kind of scale um, for too long. Of course, there's a long tradition of poems written in response to mountains. And, uh, and I like this connection between mountains and soap operas, you know. Just like mountains, barely changing year in, year out, just as gloomy, endless, hopeless. They're, uh, they're a symbol of our insignificance against the, uh, the, the, the cold, dead vastness of time. Um, I was inspired, really, uh, to, for a lot of this. came out of a film I watched by Joe Alexander where he claimed that um, Back to the Future predicted 9-11. Uh, in that film, like, it begins with these small moments of uh, accidental synchronicity and then the cuts just start getting faster and faster and he starts to bring genuine, real time travel into it. It really goes off the deep end in a way that... I can no longer tell whether Joe Alexander is a troubled paranoiac or this incredible artist who just uses conspiracy as his paintbrush. Synchro mysticism, right? That's the name of the genre. Uh, I don't know. Look, look, uh, look some stuff up and um, decide for yourself. Anyway, uh, we're now in the final loop of the footage. Uh, so she was use of repetition, hopefully the screen starts to pull less attention uh, and it, it, it should hopefully be, uh, be getting easier to listen to my words and balance it with the images on screen. Um, story of the crash is kind of anticlimactic. Uh, of course, it's just a, there's just like a natural gap in our conversation and then we sort of panic and try to plug that hole with stupid macho boy stuff. We joke about crashing, and then the joke comes true. We kind of immediately manifest it. Uh, there's no argument between us. There's no chain reaction of bad decisions. It's just like me and my mate nearly die just because for a couple of seconds we ran out of things to say. Just a, a momentary gap opens up, and we just completely freak out. It's, uh, it's so stupid, you know, to be a... Uh, to be killed by your own teenage awkwardness. <laughs>
I think teenagers are more attuned to these kind of gaps, you know, you're always finding yourself in new types of social situation where suddenly you don't know what to say or how to respond and uh, over time we build complex systems to protect us from experiencing these gaps but as a teen reality is a lot more fragile. Um, all the same, like I recognise that it feels unsubstantial for the crash to come out of nowhere as it does and so um, in an earlier draft I, uh, I described the crash but then the set piece kind of kept on going. I, like I looped the footage back like two or three more times over. Um, the motivation was, okay, so we crashed for no reason at all, but there must be some kind of moral behind it. So I'm gonna keep watching and I'm gonna see if I can decipher some kind of useful takeaway advice from this fundamentally underwhelming anecdote. Uh, so uh, yeah, so like in that draft, I, like I, I start to pull crazier and crazier interpretations from the images because of course like the footage is never going to provide a satisfactory answer. Um, so by the final loop, I'm this kind of paranoiac, clutching at straws. Uh, I mean, I, I found out that there was a, a burial site discovered um, right next to where we crashed, where they, they, they found an Iron Age druid and he had these divining rods in his grave with him. So I took the image of those divining rods and I laid it over the footage of EastEnders and then it started to spell out the name of a Dutch rubber recycling company. And then I found an image on the Dutch rubber company's website, which was this rubbish tip full of burst rubber tires with the title, Your Future Is Our Business. Yeah, I, I was trying to pull all these links together. I mean, I, I went in deep. But that was, that was kind of the point. It was it was to just like this, this kind of overloading and kind of and, and and eventually just like disintegrating. It goes a bit film noir at this point. Our uh, our DOP Ryan Scafuro, uh, he spoke a lot about wanting to give my house this uh, this dreamlike quality. You know, um, from the start, this whole project is always straddling this gap between film and theatre, and uh, the, the lighting does uh, does a lot to bridge that gap. I, I think. Um, so, yeah, now the car has crashed. Uh, both me and my mate are really shook up. And uh, now I'm explaining about how uh, how on that night I just uh, I just freaked out and, um, and left my friend by the side of the road. I mean, do I need to tell you that obviously the names have been changed to protect identities? Um, I've not been able to talk to my mate directly about this nor really do I feel like I have a right to like he's uh, he's not on social media and the only place I found him online was uh, under a pseudonym so clearly I don't really think he wants to pass the calling and, uh, and I totally respect that in the end I didn't want a story to be about actually reconnecting with this guy it's not fair to suggest that this story is somehow incomplete until he forgives me. What a fucking sociopathic way to ask for forgiveness. Like, put it out there on national TV and then wait by the phone. It's like um, it's like those guys that uh, co-opt music concerts into their marriage proposal. You know, like, they, they drop a spotlight on the girl and then have a million people, like, wait for the answer. I'll tell you what the answer should be. It should be, okay, I'll marry you out of sheer embarrassment. So the answer is yes. But, um... When I ask for a divorce in six months, I, I'm, I'm going to do it in exactly the same size crowd as a, as this one. So, um, oh, anyway, look, yes, uh, it, it made some sense that the story was not about reconciling with my mate, but rather about how I reconciled with myself. 
how do you accept the transience of your personality? You know, that we all have things in our history which we regret. We haven't been good people all our lives. You think, oh Christ, you know, how was I capable of that? You know, that's not me. And uh, I feel that either that memory becomes like a, like a scratch on the roof of your mouth and you can never stop fucking with it and you end up tortured by it always or you completely suppress it, you wipe that memory clean from your head because it doesn't tally with how you see yourself. And neither of those two options seems healthy, right? So, so we need a third way, some way to live with our multitudes. When I was doing uh, the previous show, I often found that like older theatre audiences struggled with it a lot more because, in part, okay, putting taste aside, in part, uh, they were just too attentive on me. They tended to ignore the screen and they just watched what I was doing um, because they were kind of polite, and that's what you've—they've been sort of raised to do, which was to like not look at a TV uh, when there's a, when there's a person in the room. Um, but because they did that, it, it meant that. Um, all the uh, the synchronicities uh, were lost. But then um, with uh, younger audiences, maybe those who are more used to splitting their attention, you know, used to uh, watching a film whilst noodling on your phone at the same time, those types of audiences, uh, they tended to be um, a lot better at absorbing both sides of the story and, uh, and of running both of these narratives in parallel. Uh, they could see how the, the, the screen was behaving like this rolling metaphor for my words. Yeah, I, I think some brains just won't allow for this weird kind of parallel processing. And to those people, it will always just sound like two people shouting at once. Uh, however, uh, some people are incredibly attuned to this kind of synchronistic pattern making. Uh, and uh, for those people, they're, they're going to start to see parallels that I didn't even put in there. Back to the kitchen now. Time to talk through the finale of our EastEnders episode. Billy's kidnapping scene. Pop trivia, uh, the school teacher here, who eventually turns out to be one of the kidnappers, she was also in Maid Marian and her Merry Men. I, I really do need to stress that uh, I committed to making this really early on in the process, way before I remembered anything about the night of the crash. I mean, I knew it would be about the car crash in some way, but that, that, that was pretty much it. It was, it was greenlit before one word of script, so... Um, I was genuinely feeling my way through this. You know, we all were. So um, on screen, we watch the teacher distract Carol and Alan, while in the background, the other kidnappers grab Billy and chuck him in the van. Then afterwards, this whole scene becomes a metaphor for the people you leave behind. So you have this mental barrier between foreground and background. Foreground, the people you see as the central players in the story of your life, and background, all the connections you ignore and discard because they don't fit or they make you feel uncomfortable. And uh, in this scene, for a moment, that mental barrier comes down. Uh, I spoke a bit earlier about our fear of dealing with gaps in our life. Realising that you have nothing to say, realising that you don't have an answer to a problem. These kind of gaps can, um, can really creep up on us. Like an, an absence is a hard thing to, to notice. 
right? Because by definition, an absence is something that isn't there. You only notice the emptiness when you go to call on it, uh, like, like, like Carol does here for uh, for Billy. This happens all the time in grief. You know, you suddenly think, oh, uh, you know, no present from Grandma this year, or uh, hey, you know, I, I'd love to talk with the guy that I had that crash with, but um, but he hates me now, and we'll never talk again. Um, finding a gap inside ourselves, it can feel horrendous. Nature repose a vacuum, right? Uh, so when a gap appears inside us, we panic and, and, and we rush to fill those moments with anything we can. And, uh, and good art, I think, happens when you address those holes truthfully rather than filling them with, uh, with lies. And I'm trying, at least, to be truthful. As truthful as I can here, uh, despite doing it in this kind of ridiculous, circuitous way, using EastEnders. As this, uh, as, as this wacky vehicle to get me there. Into the end credits now. Um, I stretched the credits uh, on, the, uh, on Audacity to begin with. And I just couldn't believe how it came out. It was just so mournful. It's both incredibly alien and at the same time familiar. And even... Hearing it for the first time, you know every note before it appears. Um, I listen to it over and over whilst um, writing the end. I, I really want to credit Charlie Lyon. Uh, with uh, helping me find an ending for the programme. Uh, that line, uh, Mount Wolford is not so scary when you're at the top of it. That came from Charlie. And um, I really feel that that's the moment where form and content finally tie together. And also, like, thanks to episode writer Rob Gittens for his input. He kindly met up for a coffee and talked about the difficulties of working on a story that never ends. I think Rob... Yeah, I think now he might have written more episodes of EastEnders than anyone else. You know, it's over 250 episodes and counting. Um, Rob told me that every episode is given a secret title to help the author treat the episode as a, as a standalone play rather than uh, treating it like a, a tiny instalment in a 32-year story. You have to find ways of putting the endlessness out of your head and, uh, and crafting something with its own arc and its own themes that, uh, that works independently of uh, any other episode. And yet, you know, you still have to circumnavigate our, like, our human need for closure. Uh, in a soap, nothing can ever end. You know, uh, Just think about what happens when soaps get cancelled. Like they, they go totally haywire. So you have like the last episode of Little House on the Prairie when, uh, where the whole town just explodes... Uh, or the uh, the last episode of Crossroads, where where the entire soap was revealed to be the daydream of a checkout assistant called Angela. Uh, soaps don't get endings, of course. It's as if the very concept of wrapping things up is just, like fundamentally alien to them. So you know, in a world where like news has become story shaped, where all of us define our lives against the fictions that surround us, there's something quite cathartic about rejecting the concept of an ending in favour of a a broader perspective, a, uh, a longer timeline. Um, Faulkner 
said something like, uh, the past of nostalgia is not even the past. And, uh, yeah, you know, like I, it's, it's worth touching on that, I think. You know, nostalgia, it, it creates false pasts. It, you know, it, it distorts our collective memory. Uh, it's a kind of homesickness for a home that never existed. And uh, and I have to admit, like, the process that I've gone through here, like, it is a form of nostalgia, of course it is. But, um, uh, but trying to control nostalgia and use it as an individual rather than have it used against you, um, I would argue. The word nostalgia, I, I discovered, has, uh, has two Greek roots, uh, nostos, uh, return home, and algos, uh, longing. Yes, longing to return home. And I think uh, in this end moment here, uh, we're trying to highlight that the home that we're longing for is, uh, is not real. You know, like it is, in fact, just an illusion. Or, or to go even further, it's just one illusion within an infinite number of illusions. So rather than trying to actually return home, you know, we should try and uh, simply enjoy the, uh, the process of longing. Um, so just as the programme ends here, let me just say a, a huge thank you to everyone who worked on the film. Uh, uh, our DOP, Ryan Scafuro, and producers Catherine Bray and Anthony Ng, uh, musician Jonah Common and uh, director Charlie Lyon, all of whom... Uh, collaborated and, uh, and shaped the story with me. Um, plus everyone at Batsy Art Centre for commissioning the project and helping us through the process from start to end, David Jubb and Theo Jones. Um, I'm just so grateful to have worked with such an amazing team. It is it's crazy to have been allowed to make such a bizarre film for such a prestigious platform. Uh, I'm humbled and, uh, and thanks to you for, for watching it as well and, uh, and then watching it again with uh, this commentary. I, I hope you got something out of it. Uh, check in with me next time as I attempt to make a, uh, a seven-hour opera out of Keith Chegwin's segments on The Big Breakfast. <clears throat> or um, why not watch my, uh, my new prestige mini-series uh, titled Ross Sutherland's License Fee Pity Party, uh, where I, I rap about having asthma over the theme tune to Wizbit. Um, so, uh, thanks again. Um, bye. section of one of the old trees has been cut down.
Somewhere in here I was born. And there I died. It was only a moment for you. You, you took no notice. soundtrack to missing episode and listen to johnny's amazing score in full without me yammering over the top of it um, you'll be able to pick it up through johnny commons bandcamp page just go to uh, johnnycommon.bandcamp.com so that's johnny spelled j-o-n-n-i-e uh, the album also comes with some uh, additional tracks but didn't make it into the, uh, the, the final show i heartily recommend uh, yeah, checking it out. Um, I'll be back really soon with another episode of Imaginary Advice. There's lots of stuff coming up on the podcast before the end of the year. Um, we've got a new ghost story coming up for Halloween, a little prequel to the exorcism story that I told at the start of the year. And uh, we've also got a live show in London. I know it was originally meant to be October 12th, uh, but it's now been put back to November 7th due to scheduling problems. Uh, It's going to be at Battersea Art Centre starting at 8pm. I'll put all the information about it on the Imaginary Advice Facebook page and also on uh, my website imaginaryadvice.com. Okay, so you should be able to go there to get uh, the rest of the details. So sorry about all the rescheduling there, but like it's it's definitely happening now. yeah, there was a problem previously. Okay, I, I mean, I'll tell you what it was. It was that um, the previous venue uh, booked a uh, a New Orleans jazz funeral-themed cabaret show into the, the adjoining space. And I just thought it was going to be hard if you try to just fit in the recording of a podcast in between these kind of, like, haunting trumpet elegies. So in the end, I thought, look, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's leave that um, and uh, and kind of regroup and and do something else. So just yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll put out a separate message about this because I I would hate anybody to turn up uh, at the the first date and just walk into a room full of um, top hats, uh, all um, all watching a uh, a kind of zombie pole dance routine to. Um, to um to oh when the saints come marching in actually that sounds quite fun certain that wouldn't be the end of the world would it uh but yeah new date uh new venue november 7th Battersea art center i'll um i'll fill you guys in on more on that very very soon okay so uh thanks again uh for listening and uh, take care till next time bye